John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 112.HE0616, Certificate Number 37863. The Bellamy Salute. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Did you say the Pledge of Allegiance as a young lad? Absolutely. Growing up in the tundras of Alaska. So every day. Every, every morning. Flag in the classroom. We all stood hand over heart and pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. A stirring display of democracy. Well, and to the republic for which it stands. Not just the flag, no, mind you. It's to the republic that you salute. That is a funny thing, because it's not. You pledge allegiance to the flag, and then, as an afterthought, and I guess to the republic, but mostly to this amazing flag. Yeah, it should be in the reverse, right? I pledge allegiance to the republic. As represented here, because the republic won't fit in my Alaskan one-room schoolhouse. Right. By this flag. By this flag. But it's flipped around. Why is that? Well, we're an oddly flag-centric culture, right? Think about how our national anthem is not about the spacious skies or amber waves of grain. It's actually just about a, a battle flag. Like the whole song is a celebration of whether or not this flag is going to come up over a fort in Baltimore. Right. But it's about, it's about that feeling of uh, the, the anticipation, the anxious fear that you're going to wake up in the morning and the Union Jack is going to be flying over that castle. And, but there she is, old glory. I mean, sure. it's about the survival of the country right. you know, in, in microcosm. <laughs> yeah, the flag's just a proxy for, for democracy. But we've chosen the flag in particular. You know, when you think about the Canadian national anthem, it's all about the pines and the maples, I assume, you know, the, the natural beauties and the ideals behind the country. And that all kind of goes unsaid in our, in our anthem, which is really just a poem about a flag set to a drinking song. Well, yeah, we'll use that. Right. In fact, the music it was not original, right? Francis Scott Key, just in the style of the time, just took the music from yeah, it's some a, kind of yo-ho-ho. To Anacreon in heaven, which I think everybody knew from, from down the pub. Right. You know, it was, it was like, it, yeah, it really would be just like setting your anthem to 
15 men on a dead man's chest or go <laughs> tell Aunt, beers go, on the wall. Go tell Aunt Rhody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 99 bottles of beer. Like something you sang at camp. Great green gobs of greasy, grimy gopher guts go, or whatever. Ooh, I haven't heard that song you don't know in a that long time. Uh, no, of course I do. Is I it, just hadn't heard it in 24 years. Back? <laughs> oh, say, can you see by the early light? Uh, uh, but are we, is, a, is the United States any more flag centric than, I mean, the Union Jack seems to be. Uh, something that the United Kingdom has traditionally plastered all over everything they touch. Sure, a British beer or a British whatever will have a the Union Jack on. Well, and and all of the nautical flags of Canada and New Zealand and I mean any of the former territories. If you are if you're looking at the nautical flags, there's always a Union Jack in some corner somewhere. I think visitors to the United States often comment on the omnipresence of the flag. I suppose that's true, and we do wear them. I, I was at a restaurant two days ago uh, wearing a pea coat, of and course. the old man behind the cash register said, that coat looks like you should have an American flag on it. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out a flag pin <laughs> and handed it to me. Like, it went very quickly from being like a merry suggestion to being kind of like, here's your flag pin, you're kid. In the, you're in the NRA now. <laughs> Do you think he says that to everyone? No. Like, fill in the blank. That hoodie looks like it could use a flag, I, young, I didn't youngster. Get, I didn't get the sense that he had 60 flag pins in his pocket. <laughs> I, I think like he... You just want to feel chosen. Well, I do. Uh, but, but we do overdo it considering that we're not really... Like in Europe, I suppose, if you were French, you would have the French flag flying in all of the regions that bordered other countries because France borders numerous other countries. And maybe a government building. Right. But the idea that everyone would put it out on, I don't know, do for the French people put their flags out on Bastille Day? Is they there, do. Is there a whole, but there's probably not a whole rotation of, you know, Ameri a patriotic American will maybe leave the flag out all year. Sure. Or put it out on a dozen federal holidays. Sure. If you have a beach house, there's a flag flying out in front of it, right? I you mean, don't, you don't want to annoy the flyover <laughs> state people coming out. <laughs> But yes, it's absolutely true. If you drive across the middle of America, there are, it is resplendent with flags. Flagapalooza. And this, by the way, is not the way it's always been. Uh, schoolhouses all have flags today. You know, there's a flagpole in front of every school. But that is not the way the Republic has always been. That was part of a very specific campaign not that long ago. Really? In the 1890s. It all goes back to a World's Fair. There it is. It's always a World's Fair. Everything happened in the 1890s. In, the 18, in 1892 and 1893, there was a massive Colombian exposition in Chicago, which sure. we may have discussed before. Sure, the largest World's Fair at the time. This massive white marbled uh, expanse, uh, all to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America. I put discovery in quotes. If, uh -huh. if you're yeah. woke, you, audible, can, audible you can tell his discovery <laughs> of America. And that's why we have Columbus Day. In fact, Columbus Day was never celebrated as a day of the year before it was kind of became a marketing gimmick for this anniversary celebration. And then Benjamin Harrison was persuaded to make it an observance. And then within a few decades, it was a federal holiday. At the time, there was a very popular children's magazine called The Youth's Companion. Uh -huh. which was kind of a reader's digest of its time, you know, yeah. to help form the, uh, the moral character and backbone of America's boys and girls. You've probably never heard of the Youth's Companion, but this was, a, you know, on every parlor table in America for 100 years. And what did it teach them, like uh, camping skills, or did it teach them, was it a moral education? It was more like a strong moral character, fiber, you right. know. Uh, 
you know, short stories of a, of a. Oh, uh, sure. Little boys that are skinning raccoons and. Yeah. And learn, learning life lessons, one would assume. Mm -hmm. Uh, It existed until I think the um, 1920s when it merged with the American boy. Oh, sure. Now I'm familiar with that title. It's competitor. And as a sort of a marketing gimmick for this magazine, uh, it was decided that a, uh, a premium for subscribing to it would be you'd get a flag over your schoolhouse. The publisher just decided out of the whole cloth, hey, every American schoolhouse should have a flag and we're going to be giving these away with subscriptions. It was just a, it was like a marketing drive. So any kid at the school that subscribed, the whole school would get a flag. I think so. Or if the school sold a sufficient number of subscriptions I or see. whatever it is. That's a good gimmick. It's better than a, uh, a decoder ring. But it's a little... Funny in hindsight that every school now has a flag just because one magazine was like, hey, uh, numbers are down. What are we going to... In the 1890s, they had not yet reached saturation. So they were really looking to ramp up this flag placement campaign in the American classroom. And the publisher's uh, nephew, a man named James Upham, uh, tasked his co-worker, Edward Bellamy, with coming up with a reason why schools and classrooms would need to have a flag. Did this coincide with any kind of change in the national idea of, of like our collective education? It it seems like prior to this, a local school would kind of be autonomous or, you know, there would be like a, like small regional school systems, but 1892 or, or no, you're talking about later now, right? Isn't this, um, no, this is in the 1890s, in the 1890s, right? This is sort of a time when we started to think of schooling as a national mandate rather than a local one, I guess. But I don't know of any particular, you know, until the pledge is written, I don't know of any governmental push to put flags in schools, not flags, but, but maybe it would have made flags seem more. Uh, I see. It's like, this is like a post office. Yeah, exactly. This is an arm of the man. Yeah. This is an, uh, an institution rather than just a kind of like, uh, we're throwing it together and the teacher stays with Becky's family. Yeah. Right. Or, or, and that, and that idea that education was something that every kid was going to get rather than something that just the kids that didn't have to work at the cotton mill. Well, the fact that it's kind of a universal thing was very important to Francis Bellamy. Uh, He was a a Baptist minister in Boston, a Christian socialist, Mm -hmm. uh, although he would not have used that word. Even at the time, socialist was kind of colored with the, you know, the red flag of extremism. Uh, So he, and particularly his cousin, uh, the writer Edward Bellamy, were fans of what they called nationalism. But really mm-hmm. what that means is the government nationalizes all the industry and we solve <laughs> all these, the, all the poverty and other social ills that we have. Um, Edward Bellamy wrote a famous book called Looking Backward, which depicts a utopian future of the year 2000 and became a huge, do you know this book? It became a huge phenomenon. I think it's the top selling book of the century apart from, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin and Ben-Hur. I've read about the book, but never read the book. As is so often true. I'm in the same boat. Uh, It's called Looking Backward, you know, and then it's, the the dates are backwards. 2000 dash, you know, whenever it came out, 1887 or something. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, uh, you know, it's it's people in the enlightened future looking back at the troubled time before the government had nationalized all the oil and gas industry. It's essentially an omnibus podcast, except in book form. And predicting a happier future instead of a deeply disappointing one. Right, although we are predicting an apocalypse, but we have no idea whether 
futurelings will be living in a socialist utopia. We certainly hope so. Maybe Edward Bellamy's nationalism has finally taken off mm -hmm. and you all happily go to work for the government organ that uh, you're, you're affiliated with. Good job, you guys. Good job, future nationalists. Yeah, every person is, or every being, rather, is wrapped in flags from head to toe. <laughs> all things are flags. And, you know, with this idea in mind that, you know, a free primary education is the one thing that all Americans should have in common, Bellamy thinks, this is how I reach people with my philosophy of social justice. I'm going I'm to get to them in the schools. So he's very into Upham's idea of, what if we recognize the flag? What if we say a pledge every morning mm. to the flag? Mm -hmm. So Bellamy spends a couple hours and uh, his first draft is kind of a French Revolution vibe. It's all about liberty, equality, and fraternity. Right. But that's a little controversial. Sounds a little continental for your American audience. Also, equality and fraternity might be a little suspect in certain parts of the country. Sounds pretty socialist. Right. And foreign. Right. And uh, perhaps a little more racially egalitarian. Oh, sure. Than Which would is be fashionable not a thing we were going to allow for. That's, uh, you know, how you feel about racial equality being taught in the schools might vary heavily in 1892, depending on what your geographic latitude was. That was a popular time for racial problems. Yeah, and this was this was during the Reconstruction or post-Reconstruction kind of uh, Jim Crow era. And these are the two things that really go into the pledge: is you've got the country you know, still with the Civil War in living memory, and uh, an immigration boom, which has kind of led to this idea that well, what if the American dream is uh, you know is the American dream being fulfilled or watered down by all these immigrants? It certainly depends on how they assimilate, you know, how well they adopt our ideals. So certainly hearing them in the public schools every morning at 9 a.m. is not going to hurt. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout i don't want to give the idea that bellamy was the most forward-thinking guy um like everybody of that period you can find quotes that make him sound terrible he said things like, a democracy like ours cannot afford to throw itself open to the world where every man is a lawmaker. No. Every dull-witted or fanatical immigrant admitted to our citizenship is a bane to the Commonwealth. Harumph. So, so you want to have the right kind of immigrant, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And he gets more specific. Where all classes of society merge insensibly into one another, every alien immigrant of inferior race, oh, there it is, may bring corruption to the stock. There are races more or less akin to our own, whom we may admit freely and get nothing but advantage by the infusion of their wholesome blood. Jeez, <laughs> when are you going to stop talking, Francis? Hello, Francis. But there are other races which we cannot assimilate without lowering our racial standard, which should 
which should be as sacred to us as the sanctity of our home. Now he's talking about the Irish here. <laughs> I, I certainly hope it's Irish and Italians. Yeah, the, uh, the Irish, Italians, Lithuanians, like we can't, we can't water down our... He's trying to come up with a salute that will replace all the Italian kids giving him a one-finger salute <laughs> on his way to work every Waving morning. Waving their mozzarellas at him. At the, the Perry Mason and Company publishing firm, which is true, by the way. Uh, Earl Stanley Gardner, the mystery writer, was a big fan of the Youth Companion as a child. Huh. And so when he grew up, he named his detective Perry Mason after the publisher of The Youth's Companion. Oh, well done. Anyway, well, so Bellamy, a product of his time. But he ends up tossing out his liberty, equality, fraternity ideas and spends two years scratching away at a piece of paper. I, I think he stares at the words, I pledge allegiance to my flag for quite a while. Yeah. And then finally... Waiting for inspiration to strike. And then finally, in a burst of inspiration, he writes, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It's almost there. You it's, can feel the rough draftedness of it. There are three differences. You know, my flag eventually became the flag. The. the. Uh, under God, not added until the 1950s. Right, I heard that. That was the later addenda to be, and that was inspired by... I think the creep of godless global sure communism. Sure it was. Like one of the scariest things about communism to an Eisenhower era American was just the atheism of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's make sure we've got a divine bulwark in the, con in the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. If you say God every day, it will keep Satan at bay. Is that all it takes? Just one? I think you need to, well, I, you know, honestly, like I have no personal idea how many times you need to say God in a day to keep Satan at bay. Uh, uh, what uh, if you play the Pledge of Allegiance backwards and it contains... Satan, Satan. <laughs> Paul is dead. Uh, the other difference is that he said, and the Republic instead of and to the Republic. And that's clearly a case where he just liked the flowery sound of it better. And you know? to the Republic. And to the flag and to the Republic. I like it better too. It sounds great. Although maybe it's just familiarity. And he is uh, quite conscious, even at the time, that it's more just about the sound of the words, of standing in front of a flag and saying something wholesome and American sounding yes. than it is the actual content. Because when you think about it, the, the pledge contains no actual content of what you're going to do or what it actually, like what the effect is, what it means, what ideals it's standing for. Except for liberty and justice. That's kind of the main, there's a little Superman narration at the end. But it's really just, uh, hey, I'm going to be loyal to you, Mr. Flag. And it's just one sentence. I mean, this was at a time, I think, when a lot of kids coming into school would be coming in with only two books in the family home, the Bible and the collected works of Shakespeare or, you know, one book of Milton. We weren't a very, people were extremely well-read but from a very limited number of books. So, so you're saying the lofty kind of literary sound matches? Matches the way people spoke and the way they thought, but also, also this kind of idea didn't have a lot of pressure on it from other ideas. If you proposed saluting the flag in the morning with a jaunty a little bit of verse, there wouldn't have been a competing idea. Sure, I think he is just creating out of the whole cloth this idea that we're going to talk to the flag every day and it can be whatever he wants. And, and who, and it, we see it now in our own time uh, from both sides of the political spectrum. Someone vouchsafes a theory. Well, if we, if we talk to the flag every morning, it will, you know, make us digest our oats better. And if there's not a competing argument or it's very hard to make a competing argument because your only basis for a competing argument would be, would sound less patriotic 
which is a thing no one, no one wants to assume the mantle, at least then, of making the argument like, no, let's not salute the flag. Let's, <laughs> let's remain silent in the morning. Or, you know, like, what's your alternative? Salute the, salute the sun? I mean, <laughs> that's not going to fly in it, the, these Christian towns. It does seem a bit arbitrary. You know, having grown up with it, we think it's totally normal that children would talk to the flag every day. But it seems a bit odd and arbitrary that, it, you know, it just had to be created in the 1890s. And it's weird that it's kids doing it, right? Well, kids are always where we try our social experiments. If you think about it, whenever we come up with a new theory about how we're going to make the world a better place, we never really are convinced that we can get adults to make the transition. We always experiment on the kids, you know, like... Bussing. We bust them. That's right. To a new school because we feel as adults incapable of of uh, creating a colorblind society within ourselves. But if we raise our kids... Uh, we, we'll never have to change, but man, right. in 30 years... 30 years, the problem will be solved because <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, apply this, this new theory. And, you know, we socially engineer our kids all the time. And I think that's probably... Well, and we're doing it now by, ta- by erasing Columbus Day. We're not going to succeed at doing that with... Um, with old Italians. I don't know if you ever saw the episode of The Sopranos. The parade, yeah, sure. <laughs> but if we take it out of the schools, uh, then we'll raise a generation of kids who call it uh, Indigenous People's Day. Right? Sure, it's the same with the food pyramid, you know. Adults are still <laughs> going to eat terribly, but kids have to hear every day about how if they're not having six servings of fruit, <laughs> they are failing America. That's right, six ounces of meat, that's it, people. There is, but there, there is an oath of allegiance that adults take, you know, if you become a U.S. citizen, right. for example. If you appear in court. And that goes back to the 1790s. That goes back to the founding of the Republic. Right. Um, to say the Republic, by the way, and the word indivisible in the oath is really a civil war callback, you know. That's really going to make a divided America think, wait, yes, we are one republic. We're not the Army of the Republic versus the Army of Northern Virginia. You know, this is one country indivisible. Right. That's something you would never think to put in the oath today because you're not in the shadow of the Civil War, but we're still saying it. Speaking of, uh, you know, a more fragmented America, did you know that many individual U.S. states have their own pledges? Uh, Different pledges that the kids say in the morning or separate pledges that no one ever says? In some cases, one. In many cases, there is a pledge on the books, but there's no state law. For example, Michiganders are supposed to pledge allegiance to their two beautiful peninsulas united by a bridge of steel. I don't think this is widely observed. Hmm. In Alaska, they sing a whole song. Did you guys have a a song you would sing to the Alaska flag? Would you Uh, guys do karaoke? We did have a flag. Eight stars of gold on a field of of blue, right? Eight stars on a field of blue. Alaska's flag may it mean to you the blue of the sea, the evening sky, the mountain lakes, and the flowers nearby. In Alaska, that song is sung, but not in the morning. We didn't pledge allegiance with it. You guys just hum it on the way home from work we, or we would sing around it, the campfire. You know, Alaskans all gather sometimes <laughs> before the hunt. And it's, we like the Grin- it. it's all the uh, who's down in Whoville. You guys all hold right. hands and surround <laughs> the, the bonfire. But I, I'm, con- I'm pretty sure it was eight stars of gold on a field of blue. Are you reading some internet that's just telling you eight stars on a field of blue? No, you're correct. It is eight stars of gold on a field. Eight yeah. stars on a field of blue would not even scan. You're no, right. that's wrong. Uh, the only state where it's mandated by law and has been since 2003 is, you got to guess here? Uh, to sing the... To national- say a state pledge after the 
Oh, after the national, it's got to be Texas. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ever see the Linklater movie Boyhood? Uh, no. Uh, it's shot in real time over a dozen. Oh, years sure, I've heard uh, of it. As that. this, uh, as this young boy grows to manhood, movies feature links were a popular visual entertainment, and this was a very groundbreaking one. Yeah, we watched them on our phones by being filmed. Yeah, now we watch <laughs> them on little tiny screens, which we love. I'm glad that Texas continues to prove itself. Like. The cliche is never far from the truth. In our time, Texas was a region of the country for some reason just dedicated to m- making itself uh, kind of a punchline and en- <laughs> enjoying its larger-than-life status yeah. as a national joke. As an Alaskan, it always delights me to encounter Texans in the wild and just bait them about their grandiosity. Because, of course, you could put four Texases, you could put more than that, I think, in the state of the great state of Alaska. But why would you want to? You don't want them there. Uh, geographically, yeah, it's just a geographic accident that Texas is quite a bit bigger. And a lot of their identity does come from that. Yeah. But well, and also they were the only part of the United States that ever was its independent it republic. It was once independent. Yeah. But very briefly. Briefly. I yes. feel like that's like that would be like people in Venice being like, yeah, the city-state of Venice, baby. They are that 1671 way. 1671 to 1743 <laughs> They or are whatever. precisely that way in Venice. When was the last time you were there? Were people wearing big belt buckles with a gondola on it? They have a very strong sense of their own identity in the city of city-state of Venice. So 1959 must have been very hard on Texas when it ceased to become the biggest state by a wide margin. Yeah, they pretend Alaska doesn't exist. But, you know, you don't meet that many Alaskans coming through the rye. And Alaskans have a lot of other stuff to talk about besides how big their state is. You're interesting. We're very interesting. We're usually, I mean, if you encounter an Alaskan, that person is usually jumping a motorcycle at the moment and they're too busy. You can't chat. Yeah, they're too busy to talk about how big their state is. Uh, in, in the movie Boyhood, you see the, ch- the, the main character, the child. It's set in the, the late 2000s, this scene. And so it's an accurate portrayal of what it was like to go to elementary school in Texas. The class all says the Pledge of Allegiance. And then you expect everyone to sit down and and get to work because that's how my school day and your school day always began. Yeah. Instead, the class swivels as one to a different corner of the room where there's a Texas flag. And then they say this other weird thing. I pledge allegiance to tech, you know, and you're like, what is going Whoa, on? Oh, to the great cult of Texas. <laughs> exactly. My favorite thing about the Texas pledge is that from 1933 to 1965, they were specifically pledging to some Texas, the wrong flag. They were, I pledge allegiance to the Texas flag of 1850, whatever. Uh, So they're actually pledging to a different old-timey flag that doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) But that didn't bother them. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So uh, during our time, 
even when I was still a kid, the first controversy about pledging allegiance to the flag started to bubble up uh, when some kid somewhere declined to pledge allegiance. And I think it was for religious reasons. It goes back to the 30s and 40s when Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses interpret biblical scriptures about idolatry to mean you should not swear an oath to anything. Mm -hmm. That would include a big piece of cloth in a classroom. And they took it to the Supreme Court, which ruled eight to one that, nope, sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, this is part of our national identity. You're going to say the damn pledge. Is that right? So even in that short amount of time, it had become such a part of, uh, of our way of life that the Supreme Court would uphold the pledge, a fake thing, like a marketing gimmick. Yeah, it was 1940. France had just fallen, and I think America was terrified of, as you, as you were saying earlier, of taking the anti-patriotism argument. Right. But three years later, a nearly identical case came back up, and the court ruled six to three that, just kidding, you can sit out the pledge if you have your convictions demand it. Was this the Warren court? Was this Earl Warren era? No, Harlan Stone was Harlan still Stone. the chief justice in the 1940s. Um, do Jehovah's Witnesses make that case about uh, swearing on a Bible in court or pledging allegiance to the United States in uh, when they join the military? Yes, I believe so. They, uh, you know, you have the option to affirm rather than swear. And if that's not enough of a loophole for them, I think they, I think they are just given a pass. Right. And today it's, you know, there's challenges from all kinds of humanist and atheist organizations on the same grounds. Right. And even the idea that a kid sitting, given the uh, opportunity to opt out of the pledge of the Texas pledge is not a good solution because it, Again, it isolates the kid and, and so, stigmatizes him or her. Do we live now in an era when people do not say the pledge in schools? I haven't been in a, a school at dawn in a long time. It's interesting. So Washington state law, we live in the great state of Washington. Washington state law dictates that the Pledge of Allegiance should be said every morning. Uh, in my experience, there's almost no Seattle public school that does so. Hmm. And in fact, a local school with a kind of a global internationalist flavor took a lot of heat from parents a couple of years ago when it started saying the pledge, you know, hey, we took our kids here to have more of a touchy-feely one world <laughs> United Federation of Planets vibe. Sure. And this is really harshing our mellow every morning. So all the schools in Seattle are not in compliance with state law? I, may feel, I feel like there's maybe a crackdown if... Uh, maybe that invalidates the education that all these kids are getting. Their diplomas are actually no good. <laughs> in the suburbs, interestingly, where there's maybe a broader ideological mix, uh, the pledge, in my experience, is almost always said. Um, but I think it's the kind of thing where it's on a school-to-school, -school, teacher by teacher basis and is often no longer observed. And in, uh, there's all kinds of countries where it's not observed. I mean, we are the oddity in America in pledging allegiance every morning. Looking around, I can find little evidence of other countries doing it. And when they do, it's almost always a country that has a big U.S. cultural influence. The Philippines, I think, long did it. Yeah. You know, uh, the U.S. is really only Asian overseas colony mm -hmm. for many years. If you discount Hawaii. Hawaii still does. <laughs> Which they would not. Hawaii is one of the four states that does not mandate a pledge every morning. Vermont, Iowa, Wyoming, and Hawaii are the only states that do not. And in Hawaii, you really can see, again, formerly an independent kingdom. Right. Maybe not so into rubbing it in the kids' faces every morning well, and you that the Howleys took over. You wouldn't think of Vermont, Iowa, Wyoming, and Hawaii sharing very much, but in fact, they each, in their way, ha have a sort of independent... They're sons of bitches. Like state uh, uh, mentality, right? Vermont is the... Well, it was the only one of the original 13 colonies. It was the last of the 13 colonies, right? Vermont... 
retained its independence until the very last possible moment. And to this day, all these states do kind of have the, uh, the image of kind of the recalcitrant, you can't tell right. us what to do. There's a whole song in The Music Man about how uh, Iowans are hard to deal with. They still are. They're very, I, very hard to deal with. And I think it might be the same idea in Wyoming and Vermont. Did you know that the, the United States Department of Education was only founded independently in 1979? Right. Before then, it was health education and welfare. Health education and welfare. It was kind of a, an offshoot of the health department. And before that, I think the um, Department of Education was part of the Department of the Interior. That's really interesting. Yeah. National parks and yeah. Yeah. Right. Like and millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of schools. How are we going to deal with the grazing rights of these sheep farmers in in Wyoming? Oh, and also let's get some textbooks. <laughs> that really does speak to the idea that there was not a national pursuit education. Yeah, for I decades. think I you know, my sense of it is that prior to the Civil War there was no idea of a unified I mean, I think the founders had the idea that education should be a national enterprise, but it wasn't compulsory. And I think the question of it being compulsory, I guess, is the is the moment where you see it as a national enterprise like the post office. Let's get to the weirdest thing about the Pledge of Allegiance as originally constituted, which is the Bellamy Salute. James Upham, who was collaborating with Bellamy, really wanted a physical demonstration of an oath being said. And he wanted a militaristic click of the heels yes. from every kid in the class. Yes. And then a, a slow extension of the palm forward. Hmm. And this so, is starting to sound familiar. <laughs> and so Bellamy and, what Bellamy and Upham wound up with was a bunch of children sort of, so they start out with their hand on their heart, but the hand gradually reaches outward with the palm facing upward. And in Bellamy's original conception, the palm would eventually be, the right hand would be stretched out forward and the palm facing skyward. So kind More of, of a raise the roof kind of a thing. Or like, yeah, that's, that seems like an evangelical, like testify. Ah, that's true. Uh, sense of like palm up, right? That's a gesture you see when people are being religiously transported. But only with one hand. I'm, I'm oh. half as transported by the flag as I am by the revivalist. I think your other, your other hand is clutching your Bible or your pearls. Uh, at the time, this was kind of thought of as a look back to the past. This, it was believed that this was how the Romans saluted. And the Romans did have a similar salute, but it's much more akin to the Nazi salute. Well, apparently there's very flimsy evidence that the Romans did oh. a Nazi-style salute. Because that's what happened with the Bellamy salute. You know, kids would get lazy about the Palm Skyward part of it, and you, it's very easy to find photographs of a bunch of little U.S. school children from the 1890s through the 1930s, at least, facing a U.S. flag in their classroom and all doing uh, essentially a, a, a Hitler gruss, I guess, the, the Heil Hitler salute. Right, so arm straight, palm down. To the U.S. flag. Uh, which is not a good look no, anymore. No, that's a bad look. And at the time, I think it was believed that this was, and there is some evidence that the Romans would put their palm up to say an oath. You know, Cicero talks about Oct Octavian stretching out his hand to a statue of Caesar to swear to Caesar. Um, but really, it's not until the paintings of neoclassical France, I think that's what really starts to spread the idea that the Romans were always doing these big, muscular, straight-arm salutes. You've got Jacques-Louis David's Oath of the Horatii, 
where these three men are are stretching their arms out to their swords. And did that salute take on a, uh, I mean, did Republican France adopt a kind of Roman salute during their era? In the painting of the Tennis Court Oath, mm-hmm. you know, famous moment of the French Revolution, in the most famous painting of that, again, neoclassical classic, all the people, all the, the delegates do indeed have their arms stretched out, looking maybe a little more like Nazis than like people responding to a roll call vote. Right. But this was not, you know, it was not tainted at the time, that gesture. It it kind of seemed classical and old-timey, I guess, to have a bunch of kids doing that with their right hand in class. The problem was America was starting to control world pop culture in the beginning of the 20th century. And so the Bellamy salute started to be retroactively popularized and added to portrayal of antiquity. Uh-huh. For example, there was a big Broadway hit version of Lou Wallace's book, Ben-Hur, in which all the characters did the Bellamy salute as Roman soldiers, because to an American audience, that's what they would expect to see. Of course. Roman soldiers doing A little doing bit this. of revisionism. And then when the most popular genre of silent film starts to be these sweeping historical epics, suddenly you've got all these characters in movies doing straight-armed salutes with their crazy Roman helmets and whatnot. And this becomes very influential worldwide. Uh, Interesting. Go on. For example, an Italian silent film called Cabiria is made in the teens, like around 1914. It's a big inspiration for uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation Mm -hmm. because it's such a grandiose historical epic. The script is by Gabriele de Annunzio, the Italian patriot, Mm -hmm. and he heavily incorporates all these new movie tropes of a massive people giving straight arm salute Mussolini. Yes. And that's how the diagram ends. Annunzio is a big creator of what we would think of today as the fascist aesthetic right. of fashion and this Prussian goose step and this uh, giant cl- neoclassical architecture, all the things we associate with fascist Italy under Mussolini. And then by extension, Hitler's Germany. So you're making a direct connection between the Bellamy salute, which began as a kind of like neo-revivalist palm-up affirmation of our faith in our flag, which to is... To sell Saturday Evening Post subscriptions, <laughs> by the way. Like to sell magazine subscriptions <laughs> to of To sell all magazines, things. and that through the, through the filter of early Hollywood and its dissemination globally was the influence on on fascist Europe that caused them to see, to, caused them to falsely adopt what they thought was a callback to Rome? They thought it was the Saluto Romano, but there's a lot of scholarship to the effect that that's that just a came. purely revivalist thing that would never have happened without America popularizing the salute in its elementary school classrooms. Wow. And paradoxically then the adoption of this salute by our enemies must have then depopularized the salute in the Americas, right? It, it, it went full circle and then all of a sudden we could never do it again. Sure, much as the Europeans started to see fake Roman soldiers uh, sigiling each other with the Bellamy salute and got the idea, once we started to see newsreels of Nazis using our Bellamy salute, it very quickly went out of fashion. And that's where we get the hand on the heart motion that's in the flag code today that was added in 1943 only because the Bellamy salute was no longer politically tenable and we had to invent something new to do with your hands. It's the ultimate Ouroboros. 
it, the snake just keeps eating its tail until here we are all taking our hats off at baseball games. And that concludes the Bellamy Salute. Entry 112.HE0616. Certificate number 37863 in the Omnibus. In the unlikely event, futurelings, that social media still exists in your era, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Please, futurelings, tweet at us through your time tweeters. Uh, I also have an Instagram account under my name. Our address for email, a long lost way of communicating with each other before we had mind meld technology, was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, we speak to you from your distant past and from our vantage point here. We have no idea, though you do, how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray that whatever cataclysm eventually ends the world may be far off. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like every entry in the omnibus, may be our final word. But we hope that providence will allow us to be back with you under God with liberty and justice for all soon for another entry in the omnibus.